again, all of us are here, not by any sort of human achievement, but by divine achievement. We're saved by grace, not by works. We are very, very, very aware of that and grateful to you. I'll keep our thoughts focused this morning. Speak to us through your word as we open our Bibles. And may it be your voice that people hear, not my voice. May it be as if Jesus Christ were behind this pulpit. This morning I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out, please. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. We will finish this up. I'll read it to you while you're going there. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I want to talk to you this morning about the decision. Now, in, in life, obviously, it's, life is life of choices. We make decisions. And in life, there are many big decisions. You know, think about it for a moment. Well, what do I do with my life? What career do I pursue? Who, who do I marry? Um, where do I live? So on and so forth. All these decisions that are, are big decisions of life. And I started thinking about that. I thought about big decisions, and I thought to myself, well, what is a, 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 a big decision that everybody would be aware of? I thought only one person had to make a decision under time pressure that would literally affect all of humanity. It happened in the spring of 1944. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was the Allied Supreme Commander in Europe, and he had to make one of the most important decisions of World War II, and time was quickly running out. And just bear with me as I read these three paragraphs. Uh, and this is true history, by the way. Having pushed back the invasion of Normandy from May to June 1944, and of course, the invasion of Normandy, think of Saving Private Ryan, that movie, for example. At that point in time, as we were beginning to invade Europe, the outcome of the war, we didn't know. But having pushed back the invasion of Normandy from May to June 1944 to allow more time for training and obtaining additional equipment, Eisenhower decided the attack would occur on June 4th when the tides would be most favorable for a beach landing. On May 30th, Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Mallory told Eisenhower he was concerned about reports that the Germans were reinforcing the areas where the 82nd and 101st Airborne troops would be landing. This was actually crucial because, again, if you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan, that Lee Mallory estimated that only 30% of the troops would land safely and be able to fight. And the airborne plan was a critical part of the invasion strategy. It was required to ensure that the Allies kept 
pressure on the Germans from their rear as the landings occurred. So in other words, they were dividing the army. And on Saturday, June 3rd, Eisenhower believed everything would go as on schedule. However, during the day, he began receiving forecasts of stormy weather for June 5th. With the weather conditions continuing to deteriorate, Eisenhower decided to delay the invasion for 24 hours. On the evening of June 4th, as Eisenhower sat in the dining room with his commanders, Captain James Stagg, a meteorologist, came in to report a break in the weather. The rain would stop within two to three hours, followed by 36 hours of relatively calm weather and mild winds. Eisenhower sat quietly. General Walter Smith, Eisenhower's chief of staff, told him it was a a gamble. Eisenhower looked at General Bernard Montgomery. Do you see any reason for not going on Tuesday, he asked. I would say go, replied Montgomery. The question Eisenhower said was, how long can you hang this operation on the end of a limb and let it hang there? At that moment, Eisenhower was completely alone. It would either be now or delay the landings until July, and the tides would be aligned again. But a July landing would allow for, for only a few months of fighting before the unpredictable autumn and winter weather months. At 9.45 p.m., as he stared out the window at the rain, Eisenhower calmly and thoughtfully weighed the alternatives. I'm quite positive that the order must be given, he said. With this, the command was given to start moving 5,000 ships towards France. Say that again. 5,000 ships. With the weather getting worse, there was one more opportunity to stop the airborne operation and the invasion and delay to July. At 3.30 a.m. on June 5th, Eisenhower met with Stag's, Stag and his commanders again. The weather prediction was the same, a small window of opportunity for the invasion. As the meeting continued, the rain stopped and the clouds began to disappear. Eisenhower asked his team for their opinions. Everyone wanted to go although Lee Mallory thought the conditions were below acceptable. Once again, it was Eisenhower's decision to make. If the ships sailing into the channel were to be called back, now was the time. Eisenhower thought for a moment and then said, okay, let's go. The commanders rushed out with their orders, and within a minute, the dining room was empty except for Eisenhower. It was one of the most courageous and important decisions ever made by any leader. But I would contend that the most important decision any person has to make is the decision about Jesus Christ. And it's the decision that Jesus is asking in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Why is it so important? Because it's a decision that involves eternity. Look at Matthew 7, 13 and 14. The whole Sermon on the Mount, remember? It's ending, and this is the the apex, the climax. And it's time to make a decision. And Jesus is bringing his audience to the very beginning of the sermon in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Because if you've got to make a decision about him, 
you got to go back to the beginning. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, how does one enter the narrow gate? Well, you're broken with a beggarly spirit over your spiritual bankruptcy, right? That's blessed are the poor in spirit. They're weeping over their total sinfulness. That's blessed are they that mourn. They're humbled before a holy God and his holy law. Blessed are the meek. They're starving for a righteousness that they don't have but desperately need. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And Jesus makes the decision as clear as possible. There are two gates, the wide and the straight. There are two ways, the broad and the narrow. There are two destinations, life and destruction. There are two kinds of travelers, the few and the many. That's Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Look at this. There are two kinds of trees. We haven't gotten there yet, but there's two kinds of trees, right? The good and the corrupt. Two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. That's Matthew 7, 15 and 19. There are two builders, the wise and the foolish. There are two foundations, the rock and the sand. There are two houses, and there are two elements of the storm that he discusses. That's Matthew 7, 24 to 27. I mean, Jesus is making it clear. I'm not being ambiguous. There's no confusion with our Lord. This is a simple, clear-cut decision each person must make with eternity hanging in the balance. And so I asked two questions last week. You know, what are the two gates? I said the two gates represent, one gate it represents the one true religion. The other gate represents every other false religion. And even though both gates promise heaven, only one gate delivers on that promise. The other gate, the other gate leads to hell. And I think I showed you this chart. Remember that? It clearly distinguishes the two gates. And I cannot stress this point enough. Jesus is calling for a decision, and he's making it very clear. It's an either-or. So I asked the question, well, how do we enter the narrow gate? And I gave you all of these points. We enter urgently. We enter the narrow gate. We enter individually with great difficulty. We enter empty-handed, right? We enter repentantly and utter surrender to Christ and by counting the cost. Okay? What I forgot to put on last week, I have a visual this time, and this is really what it looks like. You are striving. You are agonizing. And this is that picture. I hope it's clear enough. But those, that's that C-17 transport plane that's taking off from Afghanistan. And look at the people. The, the plane is moving. And they're desperate to to get on the plane. That's the, the attitude, the heart behind getting into the kingdom. You are striving, you are agonizing, you are laboring fervently, you are fighting to get into the kingdom. And it's a message that we, quite frankly, just have probably never ever heard. Because we've just made it too easy to become a Christian. Hear the gospel, walk down an aisle, recite a prayer, give an intellectual agreement to a set of beliefs, and you're in. And yeah, we want you to live a good life. You know, there's no real call for life change, but that's just our Lord never presented the gospel that way. It was always repent. It was a, a, a it's as if a, a changed life was demanded, and it, it's a natural result of a di- work of God in your life. It's a transformed 
heart. It's, Jesus is not an addition to your sinful life. It's a transformed life. It's not addition, it's transformation. So there are two gates. Let's talk about this, though, two ways, he says, the hard and the easy. Now, you remember this from last week. You can just listen. It says, large crowds were going along with him. And that is the, the stain of the church today. It's all about growth. It's all about being big. It's all about entertaining people. Getting the crowds. Jesus had large crowds. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sits, sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This is the way. It is the way of the crucified life. You must live a crucified life. You must be willing to give up all of your most treasured possessions, namely your, the most important relationships in life, that Luke 14, 25 to 33, the verse I just read, what they're pointing to, and yes, even your own life. Now, crucified life, I mean, you present the gospel that way, I mean, who's going to respond to that, right? But a crucified life is described by Jesus in a different manner in Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, you must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. See, when I say a crucified life, what do I mean? What's well, his life of self-denial? It is a dying to self. It is a healthy hatred of self. And I remember early on in my relationship with the Lord as I was uh, in, in college, I w would go to these Christian bookstores, and they, I don't know if they still have them today, I'm assuming they do, but they had a self-help section. You guys ever been to a Christian bookstore and see that? And I always laughed at that, and thought, how they're obviously trying to sell books, but that is absolutely the exact opposite of the message of Christianity. You can't help yourself. It's a contradiction in terms. You don't help self, you hate self. You kill self. You deny self. You starve self. You die to self. That's the crucified life. In other words, what I want, it's secondary to what God wants. Now Paul frequently referred to this life, a crucified life. He referred to the hard way. When you make the decision, you go through the gate, right? What's next? Well, it's not an easy way. It's a hard way. He wrote this, I have been crucified with Christ. Remember this? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I don't live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What does that mean, I've been crucified with Christ? Well, yeah, just so you know, 
the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're placed in God's eyes in Jesus Christ. So when he was on the cross dying, you were on the cross dying. And where he was raised from the dead, guess what? You were raised from the dead. Where he actually rose to the presence of the Father, you are now free to walk in a newness of life. You are free from your sinful nature. What was crucified on the cross with him was your sinful nature. Okay, So he says, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, what he's saying here is really this. I have been denying self for so long, I'm going into a deeper reality and experience of the crucified life. I really do want what God wants. I hate what God hates. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. I don't live for myself. I live for God and his glory. And it's Christ who lives within me, living his life through me. So Paul no longer lived for self. He lived for Christ. He died to self. And that's his message in Romans chapter 6. Remember this? That our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin not be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. He simply died to his desires. He died to self. You see, the hard way, it's a life of self-sacrifice. It's a life of resistance to the pattern of this world. It's a transformed life that comes from a transformed mind. We've talked about the path that, that most will choose not to go down this path. In Romans 12, Paul has been building everything in the first 11 chapters of Romans to this, his climax in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, everything he said, all the truth, all the theology, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So the first thing we offer God is what? Your body. You give him your soul, you're in Christ. Your body, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I've given him my spirit or my soul. I've given him my, a holy body. I've given him what? A renewed mind. I give him my mind. Then I give him a surrendered will so that I can then approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If you have trouble figuring out what God's will is for your life, there's probably some area in your life that you simply have not surrendered to him. Because God will reveal his will to you, and then you can test it and see if it's his will or not, if it's good or not, and you'll find it to be good. But you present your entire self as a sacrifice to him, your soul, body, mind, and will, in worship of God. This is a crucified life. I mean, there's, there's a holding back of nothing. I mean, I mean, the hard way is a life of moment-by-moment moment crucifying self, a life of moment-by-moment moment sacrificing self, a life of moment-by-moment moment battle against the world, a life of moment-by-moment moment commitment to Christ-like transformation. Now, you might be thinking right now, oh, Pastor, that may sound, I mean, that just sounds way too restrictive and too limiting, right? I mean, no one does that. But if you're thinking that, then be encouraged because that's exactly what our Lord's point is. Your Bible may say hard in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, or your Bible may say the word narrow. 
but the word narrow is actually translated constricted. In other words, it's a constricted way. It literally means to press together or to be confined. It's like a narrow path on a precipice. It's like you're in a cave, underground cave. And you have this very narrow place. You've got to squeeze your way through that. So to walk on the hard, narrow, constricting way with all its clear-cut requirements that leaves no room for any deviation kind of begs the question, well, what happens if I fail, right? Well, relax, because know full well that you're going to fail. And God will chasten you, he'll discipline you. And then God will wonderfully and lovingly forgive, set you on your feet again. See, that's the one encouraging thing about this, the hard way. That all the narrowness and all the restrictions, it's the simple truth that they've been born all by Jesus Christ himself. So that guess what? His yoke is easy. And his burden is light for us. Now the easy way is by contrast. It's the way marked with no rules. But there is plenty of room for diverse theology. In this way, you will find a tolerance of every conceivable sin. It's the way that says, just as long as you love Jesus, everything is acceptable. It's a way where all the desires of the fallen heart are fed and nurtured under a veneer of religious hypocrisy. There's no need for humility. There's no need for confession of sin or denial of self. I came across this article on January 17, 2020 um, that really describes the easy way. It's called Progressive Churches Return to Seeker-Sensitive Model, and it's an article by Dustin Mester. Um, He writes this, a Sunday service that is part therapy session, part stand-up comedy routine, and part live concert. This is not your grandmother's idea of church. That's how PBS NewsHour began their recent segment on New Abbey Church in Pasadena, California. The segment on this LGBTQ-affirming church shows a stand-up comedian opening for a female pastor who talks about her wife to a crowd of hipster congregants. The easy way. church was founded by Pastor Corey Marquez, who left a large evangelical church when he realized why young people weren't coming. They didn't find it relevant to their needs. Dissatisfied with what he calls the evangelical church's idolatry to numbers-driven model for success, Marquez started a church he hoped would correct the errors of the megachurch. On the church's website, you'll find a video where the pastor welcomes you and says the following in part, we are a, now listen to this, We are a Jesus community telling the story of God in Los Angeles in 2021. This is a direct quote. And we do that through celebration, healing, transformation, maturity. Sounds good, right? We believe that the good news is simply this, that God celebrates each and every one of us. That's code for what, folks? They're inclusive. They're celebrating the fact that you can be whatever you want to be in your sexuality. 
and that God is celebrating with you. That God calls us child, that God loves us, and that God enjoys us. You see, as long as it's all about the love of God, and he accepts everything and everybody. That we shouldn't come to church simply to be accepted, that we should all be celebrated, and that in celebration we find healing and transformation. It's a justification for a sinful lifestyle. The article goes on to say, by trying to fix the problems with megachurches, however, Marquez ditched the gospel. In pointing to his new understanding of the cross, Marquez says this, this is why Jesus goes to get sacrificed. You ready for this? To put an end to sacrifice. Not because he is the perfect lamb to end sacrifice, but because he's saying that sacrificial system is wrong. You don't need to convince God you're okay. God already loves you where you're at, end quote. That's the easy way. That's the easy way. Now Paul warned Timothy that a trademark of the easy way is the inevitability of abandoning the faith. In 1 Timothy 4.1 he said this, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is the easy way. There's no need for a changed life. God accepts you the way you are. You're a murderer. That's okay. You abuse children. What do they do with their children's ministry? They're accepting everybody. What if you're a rapist? That's okay, right? We celebrate you. So there's no need for sacrifice and suffering. There are no rules except those made by man to fit into your comfortable little religious system. That is the easy way. There are two travelers, the few and the many. I mean, again, who would choose the narrow gate in the hard way. Would you be here if that's how the gospel was presented to you? Again, Luke provides some insight. He says in Luke 14, 25, again, now large crowds were going along with him. But we just read through that, and he, I mean, Jesus drew a very hard line, didn't he? You have to hate who? Family. Father, wife, you know, your children, relatives, even self, yeah. He sums it all up in what it requires to follow him. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I mean, you must be willing to give up everything. Well, how did the large crowd respond? Well, if you notice, there's no recorded response in Luke 14 we don't know how they responded, but we have a clue because the very next chapter gives us a clue because that chapter ends in verse 32, I think, or 33, and it goes right into Luke 15, 1. It says this. I'll listen to this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now who were the tax collectors and sinners? They were the ones who knew that they were spiritually bankrupt. They were well aware of their sin. 
They were humbled that, that Jesus would talk to them and they wanted something, a different life. So who would choose the narrow gate in the hard way? Well, the truly desperate who agonize over their complete spiritual inadequacy, who are broken over their sin, who out of humility before such a righteous God hunger for a divine righteousness and shun self-righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees thought they were righteous. So of course they would never choose the narrow gate in the hard way. But who would? The tax collectors and sinners would. And they are the few. It's not the many, it's the few. The large crowds that follow Jesus numbered in tens of thousands. Remember I told you that. And after his death and resurrection, who remained? Well, in the upper room, we're told 120. Acts 1.15. Peter stands up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there. If there were just 10,000 people following Jesus, that large crowd, in the upper room, there are 120. What percentage is that? <laughs> yeah. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Speaking of Jesus, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So we, have, we went from roughly 10 to 20,000, probably closer to 20,000 people were in a large crowd, and now we have numbers of between 120 and 500. I mean, who would choose the narrow gate in the hard way? The answer is the few. I mean, you're a Marine, right? It's the Few, the proud, because they want to be the, the roughest or toughest or hardest of all the armed services. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus looked at his disciples and said this to them, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. The word little is the word micron. You know what that means, right? We get a word micro from it, and it means something small. It's the same word as used in Matthew 13 of the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, right? Folks, it's always been a microscopic flock, a small flock, a little flock. In the parable of the sower, think about this. Jesus explains why so few choose an arrow gate in a hard way. Here then the parable of the sower, he explains it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, what is the... Here's the word of the kingdom. What's that referring to? That's the gospel. And does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. The one in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one in whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one in whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. That's Matthew 13, 18, and 23. To the first group, didn't even respond to the gospel because they weren't even searching. I mean, the hearts were so hard, it had no impact. They didn't care. Now, the second and the third group, they were searching, but what happened to them? They didn't count the cost, right? 
When it became too hard, what happened? They fell away. Well, it turns out, which gate did they choose to go through? The wide gate. Three out of the four groups chose the wrong gate. Let me put it to you another way. 75% rejected Christ's offer of the kingdom and its requirements. Only the last group, 25%, chose the narrow gate. So who will choose the narrow gate in the hard way? Again, the few. Are you beginning to see that it's always been the few who seek with all their hearts, who agonize in the power of God knowing their own human inability to enter, but who are willing to pay the price and count the cost? One more verse to summarize my point. You know it. Jesus put it very bluntly, very simply this way. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, the many choose the wide gate and the easy way. Because it's just so easy. I mean, it's so easy to just go with the crowd, isn't it? I mean, you just add Jesus to your self-indulgent life and you go to church, and you feel religious. There's no self-denial because you belong to a system of religion that tells you it's not necessary. You don't need to deny self. And this is the way to go. And in the end, is heaven, they promise you. But that promise of heaven is unfulfilled. I mean, that's the many. Let's close talking about the two destinations. Life and destruction. There is the way that leads to destruction. It's the easy way. And there is a narrow way which leads to life. So there's the way of life and the way of death. And throughout the Bible, God presented this choice. Remember we went over this? Life and death. From Moses to Joshua to Elijah to Jeremiah, there is the way of life and the way of death. Even the psalm, this is the very first psalm, talked about this, this contrast. Sums it up in Psalm 1-6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's the righteous way. But the way of the wicked will what? Perish. They perish. So the godly enter into blessing, but the ungodly perish. So the way of life is obviously eternal life, but the way of destruction refers to eternal judgment in hell, accompanied by everlasting torment. And the Lord says that life ends up, folks, in one of two places. And as important a decision that Eisenhower had to make in June of 44, life would still go on for some people. But there comes a time when your life is coming to an end and you're going to go to one of two places. And this is what our Lord is saying here. He's making it very clear cut. All religions in the entire world, apart from the religion of divine accomplishment in Christ offered through Christianity, will end up in the same place, destruction. And I want to close with an illustration, but in the Proverbs it says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. 
Now, this is how it will end for those who try to come to God on their terms. They're on a way that seems right, but it only leads to death. This is in Luke 13, 22 to 29. And when you understand the, the gravity of, of Jesus' words, this is a very sobering passage. And I would not wish this upon anybody. So now he's passing from the one city and village to another in Luke 13, teaching and proceeding his, on his way to Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and I always think of that verse where Noah had to shut the door to the ark. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. The people that I just described to you, I want you to... In fact, turn to Luke 13. Everyone turn to Luke 13, 22 to 29. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Luke chapter 13. Verses 22 to 29. Take a closer look at the people Jesus is talking about. Verse 25. Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Folks, these people that he's referring to, ready? Is this you? They're not irreligious people, right? We would say these are people that are religious, which would mean what? Where are they right now? They're in church. They're in church. Or they're at home watching. But they are religious people. Here's the thing. I mean, they thought they were on the right road. You see that? And they're just now finding out they were not on the right road. All of the people in Abbey Church in Pasadena, California are deceived and they think that they're on the right road. Now maybe you know somebody. Let's think of it this way. Maybe you know somebody that is, just, is, is in a, a liberal church that is preaching heresy and they're faithful to go to that church and they're your friend. 
I want you to close your eyes and picture that person outside knocking on that door and you are told to tell them you can't come in. Our Lord does not know you. I mean, these people are banging on the door and they're crying out, look, look at this, we ate and drank with you. In today's language, we would say this. We've taken communion, we've fellowshiped, we've listened to many sermons. And I tell you, I, I can't think of a more horrible scene than people under the illusion that they're saved only to find out that the door is shut in their face. I mean, it's a very sobering, chilling thought that should serve as a motivation to continue to pray and to reach out and share the real gospel with these people who are lost. I mean, in February of 1959, Billy Graham left his home in North Carolina uh, to spend more than three months preaching the gospel across Australia and New Zealand. Now, for some reason, he, he writes, I could not fully understand, although I believed it was the leading of the Holy Spirit, I developed an overwhelming burden to visit the distant continent of Australia. More than three million people, nearly a third of Australia's population at the time, attended a Billy Graham crusade event in 1959. Okay? Obviously, he was led by the Spirit. Here is a picture of him in 1959 preaching. Uh, three months he was in Australia, away from his family, but they, there's plenty of pictures, but these stadiums were filled. Here are two testimonies from these events. The first is from a, a guy by the name of David Morrison. He writes this. It was during the 1959 Billy Graham crusade that I gave my life to Jesus Christ at age seven. In 1968, so nine, what, nine years later, I was privileged to be a part of the counseling team again in Sydney. Today, I pastor a vibrant church in central Queensland, Australia. The grace of God is an amazing journey. Thank you, Jesus. That's from David Morrison. I attended one of these events. So this man, he chose life, right? Because that's the destination, life or, or death, life or destruction. At the same time, a letter was written to the Melbourne Daily Paper after this crusade. And this is what another man wrote. After hearing, hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on TV and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartedly sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's need saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Now listen to this. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance. That acknowledges no barriers of color or creed. That remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. And he signed his name, and that man chose death. And that's the choice that lies before everybody. It is the decision. There are two gates. 
there are two ways. There are two destinations and there are two, two lives, folks. Eternal life or eternal suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we close this morning knowing that I pray that we would, would make the choice to choose life. That no matter what it costs us, you are worth it. And we get so much more than what we, we put in. Make us like those Afghans who were just so desperate to get out of Afghanistan. May our striving to enter into the kingdom be with the utmost energy. Jesus, I thank you that you have made this decision clear-cut. There are two gates, there are two ways, there are two travelers, there are two destinations. You couldn't be any more clear. There is no confusion with you. It's you and we get everything, or it's not you and we get nothing. And so we surrender to you this morning. We ask that you would do your work through us for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. God bless you and enjoy your afternoon.